Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Pentagon pursues a computing power boost in space and upping the achievement level for the president's management agenda. It's Thursday, July 21st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The rollout of the electronic health records program at the Boise, Idaho Medical Center of the Department of Veterans Affairs is on hold now. The chief information officer of the VA, Kurt Del Bene, tells the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee the system has stability problems. He says he's working with Oracle Cerner to fix the software problems. Agencies have a December deadline to send four-year real estate plans to the Office of Management and Budget. OMB Director Shalanda Young writes, agency senior real property officers, chief financial officers, chief human capital officers, chief information officers, and budget officers should draft the plans together. The deadline for the plans is December 16th. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department has a shortage of power that it says it needs for 21st century warfighting. The department's looking at ways to turn up its computing power in space. Lieutenant General Bill Bender, U.S. Air Force retired, is senior vice president for strategic accounts and government relations at Lidos. He's former chief information officer of the Air Force. General Bender, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. My colleague John Harper reporting that uh, Space Force Chief Technology and Innovation Officer Lisa Costa is talking about using edge computing to do most of their AI compute. This is where we start to get to the really, really advanced stuff that the Space Force was intended to to get to, isn't it, General? Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me today. It's good to speak to you. And um, yeah, I would agree with that premise for absolute certain. We're looking to, uh, you know, sort of leverage space as a war fighting domain. And it's, you know, it's easy to say that and to recognize the challenge of doing it broadly. But when it gets down to, um, you know, making that happen, and uh, both on the protect the weapon system, or I should say the space systems that are are there, but also to uh, think differently about the warfighting construct, if you will, the operational warfighting efforts that will uh, have to take place, recognizing now that space is not a you know benign environment. It means that um, we're going to have to use legacy systems. And I think that's the point that Lisa was primarily making, that uh, many of these systems were designed in a time where space was maybe benign or simply, uh, you know, the effort and the development of the of the system did not consider uh, the, the notion of processing some of the data uh, right there at the tactical edge, in this case, uh, you know, in the atmosphere, and so it's it's a problem. And uh, having our government leaders like Lisa and others recognize it, then industry can work with them to uh, get after it. As I read John's reporting on FedScoop.com, the the concept that came to my mind was, and and this is me reading this. This is not any of these officials that he quotes in the story saying this, but it sounds like the model historically has been. 
ground to edge, wherever that edge may be, and edge back to ground. And then if that data needs to go to another location, it goes again, ground to edge, where what they're going for is edge device to edge device. Am, am, I, am, am I catching the concept right? Feel free to tell me I didn't get it right, General. Uh, well, the, the, the best, I mean, um, you know, we are definitely in the storming and norming phase. So what I would, would say is that is half of the issue, right? Because in the past, you'd collect data, uh, transfer to a ground, uh, you know, sort of processing node, do the processing, and generally disseminate from there. Here, because of the uh, volumes of data and the criticality of speed, uh, what we're saying is the, ne the necessity of processing on system. And so uh, it's a two-part problem. Ways that you can creatively get to that is actually, for example, uh, the, the uh, emplacement of a node, a, a data processing node where it's much closer, much faster, uh, hopefully protected. And uh, the technology is not necessarily the limiting factor here. It's the uh, extreme cost of developing these systems, getting them on orbit. And just in general, as I alluded to initially, new concepts of, of warfighting that are going to be necessary in order to incorporate uh, capabilities that basically go to speed, scale, and security that uh, the environment has produced for us in this ever-changing world in which we're operating in. What kind of thought process, what kind of brain power has to go into those new warfighting concepts? It strikes me that you at least have to have some idea of where those concepts are going before you start this developmental process. Well, well I think first is, is, as a practical matter, it's developing the systems that allow this edge uh, computing to, to take place. Now, whether or not the capacity exists to onboard them to existing systems, or as I, you know, suggested, and this is hypothetical at this point, would be processing nodes, uh, you know, at, that become part of the architecture over time, so that you're rapidly offloading and onboarding and essentially a workaround for at the edge processing that's required. Uh, so for example, then you could enact or uh, enable, I should say, different aspects of the existing system in a defensive mode or even an offensive operations mode that the, the environment drives you to assess having now processed the data that's available to you in a quick fashion. Um, you know, and, and then new systems going forward, you know, I would say that the article alludes to the requirement for uh, commercial providers, and that is true, but I would also say not exclusively. As I mentioned, this is not a technology problem to solve. The capabilities are there and have been proven and frankly are in use. Uh, ground edge to cloud capabilities exist and are in, you know, you know, sort of the warfighting operations taking place today in Ukraine and Russia. And so we've proven the technology. Now we have to think of it in the space domain. When I flagged this article for you, General, is something I would like to discuss. You responded by flagging for me a piece that the former chief data officer of the Pentagon, Dave Spurk, wrote for Breaking Defense. And he's got four 
items in there that uh, toward, to this point of rethinking what conflict involves. One of them that he writes about is procuring a flexible data architecture. And I would argue as somebody who's watched this from the outside, not the inside like you certainly, the word procure is probably as important as the data architecture concept. The way the department gets it and what they buy uh, is as important. As you said, the technology is baked, but what they get and how they get it, the process by which they get it strikes me as tremendously important too. Yeah, it's it's a bit of uh, setting setting standards and and objective development efforts around truly open architecture, non-proprietary, government-owned data. These attributes are critically important to uh, develop a flexible architecture, like David talked about in his article. It needs to be flexible flexible in that the environment is continuously, in, in some cases, it's not an exaggeration to say swirling uh, in its ability to change hour by hour, day by day. Uh, let's not forget that in this now non-benign uh, war fighting domain, the adversary gets a vote. And so they're very aggressively uh, making changes that we're going to have to adapt to and and adopt our systems to in order to remain inside of uh, the ability to remain competitive. So, but yes, I think your premise on, on, uh, you know, sort of how we procure a flexible uh, architecture really means going forward. We want one that interrelates with our legacy force, uh, you know, sort of building in the workarounds required to do that. Uh, we talk in in software, for example, wrappers, uh, if if that's necessary, but you know other concepts that could be brought to bear in order to uh, you know advantage our current legacy systems to do that. And then, of course, going forward, new, I would not limit it to only commercial, but basically, they have to meet the attributes of open, uh, non-proprietary, government-owned data. It's just a necessity. General Bill Bender, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming back on the program. Always good to talk to you, Francis. Thanks again. You can read more about the computing power increase in space in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, coming on the next program Monday, the digital transformation at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dave Catanoso has a new title there and a new portfolio. He'll tell you all about it on the next Daily Scoop Podcast, coming Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. A new round of updates is out for the president's management agenda. The Office of Management and Budget says the priority area teams are hitting some of their goals already. Robert Shea is National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's former Associate Director at OMB. Robert, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You know your way around the PMA. Uh, What do you see in these updates that uh, OMB is talking about, especially regarding these priority area teams? Welcome. Yeah, great to be with you, Francis. And I'm not just—I don't just know my way around the PMA. I know my way around podcasts. I um, uh, host the popular FedHeads podcast. I just want your listeners to know. Um, I'll cut that part out. <laughs> so, what's important about this is that this is the first big update of the status of agencies' efforts to implement the PMA. And as you know, they're focusing on workforce, customer experience, and building uh, back government better. Um, And so we got 
a mix of some good outcomes, mostly process updates, but it really does demonstrate that the administration's gonna continue to report on how they're doing against the commitments they made when they launched the PMA last year. Is that one of the most important elements of demonstrating results in the president's management agenda is actually demonstrating them and, and keeping people updated? Maybe not even so much the public as reinforcing in the minds of the people who are doing the execution and implementation that OMB's watching and is going to talk about what we're accomplishing. Accountability, I guess, is the simple term for it. I 100% believe that reporting progress and holding agencies accountable through that reporting is a critical element of the success of any management agenda. You know, it, it, we should also reflect that we're almost to, well, we're, we're a year and a half in um, to the first, to, to the Biden administration, and it's taken this long to get the PMA in place and to get some reporting underway. So nobody's got en- as much time as they want or expect. Um, and so you need to uh, make as much progress as quickly as possible. This just, and, and this should remind people that they're going to need um, quantifiable outcomes, um, steps they've taken to demonstrate progress in each of these areas. Workforce priority goal teams set initial milestones, notably OPM issuing skills-based hiring guidance and OPM and the Department of Labor releasing mental health resources to federal employees. That's just under the workforce priority. And there, of course, are the customer experience priority and business of government priority that you laid out a few moments ago. But these are not just paper pushing. This sounds like they're they're accomplishing things already. Um, yes, you're right about the, the dearth of time, but it sounds like they're really trying to make up for it by pushing the envelope. It's too soon to expect real changes in outcomes in these areas. So it may come across as a little paper pushing, but they're focused to me at least on the right thing. Hiring um, is a seemingly intractable challenge for the government. So to provide clear guidance on how to make sure people are recruiting and retaining the right skills, really important. Um, I really love the focus on major life events in the customer experience pillar. Um, and, you, you know, the, they will sound familiar to real Americans, having a child and early childhood for low-income families, navigating transition from military to civilian life, approaching retirement, facing a financial shock, recovering from, from a disaster. I mean, those are things that um, not only uh, real Americans are exposed to um, but it's also the one where they see the greatest amount of friction when they have to deal with the government. So eliminating some of that friction, making it easier for Americans to get the benefits they um, are offered and deserve uh, should be real important. I do want to see quantifiable improvement in customer experience metrics in each of those areas, as I do improving the hiring process. You mentioned those life experiences and there are eight of them now. They've added five this year. And it strikes me that that combined with some of the progress we're seeing in digital transformation and the abilities, uh, the ability for agencies to exchange information, data act and Gipper modernization and so on that are, that are driving that strikes me this whole idea that 
I mean, you and I've been around for a long time and we used to talk about how you would reform an agency and you'd move this big block of stuff that's in one agency to some other agency or some bureau to bureau within an agency and all that. That process might be rendered moot by the this life experience concept and the digital transformation that agencies are undertaking, Robert. And that's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, well, um, I think so. The... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm anxious to see just how these things hit the ground. Um, but, but bringing up digital reminds me that a lot of the focus of these customer experience efforts are on traditionally underserved communities, those who may not have access to uh, technology in a way that you and I do, um, may not be as familiar with it or as adept at navigating the complexity of government through digital means. And so they'll have to dig hard to find out how to ensure those traditionally underserved communities get the access that, that is intended to each of these services in these critical life events. What is a reasonable timeline to see whatever the next desirable outcome is? Well, I think the intent is that these updates be quarterly. That's I was told there'd be no math, but they are called quarterly performance management agenda updates. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think if you think about the length of an administration, I would think in the next two, three quarters, we want to see demonstrable improvements, not across the board. Um, and, you know, these are president management agenda priorities because they are significant challenges, but I think you'll want to see quantifiable improvement in these areas within the, uh, the calendar year. Um, that FedHeads podcast that you referenced, I know somebody who used to help you out with that a little bit. We and, miss him. We miss oh, him. that's very kind. One of the things that we used to talk about on that show, Robert, is the way that the appropriation cycle ties to what agencies are expected to accomplish. Is that a potential wrinkle here as we're staring down the barrel of, again, CRs again, probably in October for God knows how long? I think it's an enormous risk to progress on the PMA, just as it is many other things. If we're in a period of gridlock for the foreseeable future, the investments needed to change in these areas might not materialize. Moreover, you may get uh, Congress with a different point of view, especially um, with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion that may hinder a lot of these efforts. So I do think those are genuine, significant risks to progress going forward. Yeah, and you may get a Congress with a different viewpoint about telework and remote work, which could really dramatically change the way that the workforce implements these things and the attitude that they have about their jobs and how they implement these things. Because the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey numbers this year, uh, Lauren DeYoung Shulman was on the show last week talking about the best places to work in the federal government numbers. They're not great. And a lot of it has to do with the apprehension that employees have about transitioning back to a full-time uh, in-the-office work, given the freedoms and flexibilities that they've had over the last two and a half years. Yeah, I'd hope Congress trusts federal agency leadership to manage their workforces in a way that maximizes their productivity and engagement. 
Um, but you know, we're coming out of a period where the the workforce was pretty battered, and the intent of the PMA Workforce Initiative is to restore the public service, the the public um, sector workforce. So um, it's going to be a weird time. In case nobody's warned you already. Robert Shea, you warn me all the time about how weird things could get. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to the updates in the president's management agenda in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.